situation of decisions around admission to intensive care can be quite a, a challenging or difficult time for intensivists. And I was wondering whether you could draw on a personal experience of this and give us an example of a situation that you've been involved in and that was difficult or challenging for a particular reason and just talk about that with us. So I think one of the things that is often difficult for everybody but is problematic even at consultant level around decision making for patients is around patients that have complex needs or where the benefit from admission to critical care isn't necessarily clear at the point of referral and then often it can be very difficult to tease out what we know about the clinical prognosis of the individual how how they are likely to benefit from the treatment from our own particular views and thoughts around the individual and what their clinical condition means to us. So an example might be somebody who has been on the intensive care unit for a large amount of time, is discharged to the ward and everybody breathes a sigh of relief and think that's it and then they get re-referred at a later point and have made some progress but not sufficient progress for people to feel comfortable about deciding what happens if they need to come back to critical care or what treatments we offer. And I would say for me, outside of the current situation, that's the sort of thing that as a consultant involves the most discussion and angst really. And how do you sort of manage that situation? How do you go about tackling that or coming to that point where you make that decision? Well, I think it's interesting to say that within a kind of a a karma situation, it's often always helpful to have the benefit of several different opinions and several different perspectives. Because one of the things that we're very good at as intensivists is kind of balancing thoughts of what's the right thing to do for that person and what's the right thing to do for patients in general. And we'll quite happily switch between those two considerations. So they're considerations of equity and also efficiency. What's making the best use of critical care resource, but also what's doing the right thing for that individual patient. And when you involve other people or you get other people to challenge your decision-making processes, it will often help you to think about what factors might be negatively impacting on that decision around the patient, particularly around things around unconscious bias. So the commonest example and the fear of everybody is patients not coming to critical care on a particular age range or a particular age band and saying we don't take anybody over the age of 80 or we don't take anybody with this particular condition. That sometimes needs to be challenged within the context not just of the clinical evidence base but also around that particular patient and whether there is any bias operating around that particular patient. It's a common thing that comes up isn't it? Is age important? I think you have to look at age in the same way as you look at any other physiological variable or any other diagnostic variable and say, what is it about that particular variable that we know about the evidence base for critical care at that particular time? And there will be elements of age that are very relevant. So the example might be my particular professional interest is around frailty. So we know that we see frailty increasing more as people get older. And we also know from the VIP study that people who are over the age of 80 and have considerable degrees of frailty, particularly clinical frailty scores above five, they don't do well in intensive care. 
But we also know that patients who are young and below the age of 60, some of them have degrees of frailty. So it's often not just about the single parameter, but it's about the parameter within the context of what else is going on. And so I think it's very difficult on a personal clinical level to say somebody of a particular age shouldn't come to critical care. It's also something to be aware of as employees in the NHS that actually there is a statutory requirement on all NHS professionals to uphold the principles of the NHS constitution, which includes the Equalities Act, and we can't discriminate on grounds of age. So to actually say somebody can't come to critical care because they have a particular age is discriminatory. We might say they cannot come to critical care because we don't believe they would benefit based on a number of factors. And age may be one of them in a particular condition. That wouldn't be discriminatory. Frailty is becoming uh, quite an important thing to consider, isn't it? And I, I noticed mm. that's in the recent NICE guidance. What sort of evidence do we have or, or what things can we tell patients about how frailty might impact on an intensive care admission in terms of helping to inform patients? I did some work last year with the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network, which is part of NHS Elect. Um, and we were looking at frailty within critical care. One of the first things about it that I think is really interesting is everybody understands frailty. Whatever tool they use, whatever way they define it, it has a lay meaning as well as a professional meaning. So when you're talking to patients and relatives about somebody being frail, they understand it. Um, And I think that's really helpful. And it's less inflammatory than saying somebody has a particular age or a particular condition. What we do know about frailty in critical care is is it's got a reasonably good evidence base now. The longest evidence base that has been developed has been in Canada. Um, Sean Bagshaw's done most of that work. In Sheffield, we've been collecting frailty data on all our admissions to critical care since about 2010. So we've got about a 10-year database. Um, And there is quite a lot of work now growing worldwide in terms of looking at frailty as a more objective parameter, not a completely objective parameter, but looking at it as a more objective parameter to say it actually marks out quite well how somebody does when they come to critical care. So again, an example I can give you is a few years ago, I had a BMED Sci student who looked at patients with pneumonia who came to critical care. And she looked at all ages, not not just um, older, frail patients. And apart from decisions around treatment limitations, so if the team felt a particular individual wasn't doing well in critical care and therefore would put limitations on treatment, frailty was actually a really good independent marker of how well somebody would do in terms Mm. of their outcome if they got admitted uh, with pneumonia. And again, when you have complex diseases like liver disease, some of the hematological malignancies, where you'll often hear people say, but this person is only 45, you know, you must do absolutely everything. But as an intensivist in your heart, you know, because of the clinical conditions and the way of the presentation and what else is going on, that that person is unlikely to do well. It's a useful parameter to be collecting information on and looking at in research terms because it takes the inflammatory aspect of age out of it. And and again, that can be quite helpful. When you're making these decisions about patients, what sort of process do you go through? I mean, who do you get information from? Who do you discuss things with? What do you do practically when you're on the ward? I think for anybody making decisions, you have to consider what is required of you. And there are four broad areas all of us as doctors are required to take account of when we're making decisions. 
we've got to use our personal experience and our clinical experience and we've got to operate within a legal framework and an ethical framework and that's not just around the law but that's around what the GMC or the NMC requires of us as professionals and then we've got to think about what might be ethically appropriate and also sometimes we do inevitably although we don't frequently acknowledge it but we do sometimes have to consider about the resource and what resource we have and how we make the best use of that resource and I think that's sometimes when it can get a bit problematic but it's really important to always start with what do we know as professional clinicians you know what's the appropriate way of behaving in this situation and involve patients, relatives and their carers in those discussions and so that they are making the appropriate choices for their care. Often within critical care, it's really difficult for us because people refer too late and then we lose the chance to involve patients in their care decisions. And often it can sometimes be a week down the line that somebody says to us on critical care, well, they'd never have wanted this. You know, and had you known that right at the start, it would have been much, much easier. So I think one of the benefits that will come in the long term from the NICE guidance, irrespective of the current situation, is that recognition that actually some of the discussion about critical care and discussion with patients about what they want if their condition declined needs to be pushed upstream and needs to take place at a much earlier point in the admission process. So it's not left to us at the point of deterioration to second guess what that person would want that's not right yeah and I totally agree with you it it can be really difficult you've got that opportunity to actually get a really good information which is essentially from the patient uh, and you lose that opportunity by just delaying having that conversation do you think there's particular reasons why people delay having that conversation with patients Some of the work we've been doing recently around getting tools together to support the NICE decision guidance has certainly opened my eyes into the lack of understanding that takes place in points higher up the pathway. And I think, again, as intensivists, we must be very aware of the fact that we live in a little bubble and what we know about intensive care is expert knowledge. And other clinicians and other clinical groups don't have our expert knowledge not just in relation to how we treat patients, but also in terms of outcomes or how we make decisions. So, for example, I've been working with some general practitioners recently and just giving some very basic information about what critical care might mean in terms of the impact it has on somebody after they've been on critical care in terms of the recovery, the duration, the prospects for them getting back to their own home, changes it may make on their medication. And that has been very, very helpful to the general practitioners. They have said that's really informative. That's the kind of information we need to know when we are seeing patients and having discussions with them. And similarly, you know, acute medical units, emergency departments, they do need more information and support than we have historically been giving them because we're asking them to do more. So I think we do have to get out of our little bubble and um, and acknowledge the fact that there is some information sharing that we need to be doing. And I think that's true for my experience as well. And actually, when you go and engage with clinicians sometimes, you actually realise how little they actually know about what happens once they get onto intensive care. And that can be difficult to talk to a patient about if you don't have any frame of reference of what it's like and what the outcomes might be or what the potential problems might be. How do we engage with clinicians what's the best way in engaging with them because every single patient sometimes is quite different 
um, the situation about it and, and maybe giving them a list of data on outcomes and things is not necessarily useful for them. How do we try and engage them in a way that they're able to actually take that forward by themselves and have those discussions? I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a nuanced discussion, but it has to start with the patient. And one of the key phrases that comes from the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network and is being promoted throughout the NHS at the moment is what matters to me. In the whole concept of shared decision making, if we don't ask, nobody will tell us necessarily what matters to them, what's important to them, and we make assumptions. So the classic assumption is often around critical care saves lives, don't come to critical care and you will die. So the information is presented by the parent team to the patient around in a very binary fashion. You either go to critical care and you survive. If you don't go to critical care, you will die. So, of course, when it's presented like that, anybody will say, well, that's what I want then, isn't it? Because yeah. that, that's all yeah. you've got. If you actually say, well, if you come, it's far more nuanced than that. If you come, this is what it means. These are the likely changes that may occur. This might have an impact on whether or not you go home you will find that people make different decisions. So there's a lovely um, study from the King's Fund which illustrated this, what we call preference misdiagnosis, which is where if we don't give patients the right information, they give us an answer that we are expecting. When you give patients the right information, up to 20% of them will make a different decision. So it's really important to get in there early and to actually find out what's important to a patient And then if we can encourage clinicians and parent teams at least to know that, we can then embark on more education and more work around making everybody aware of what critical care means. So even at the first stage, just getting them to find out what matters to the patients really is valuable. I think sometimes where it can be difficult is where the patient doesn't feel it's the right time in the uh, disease process in order to have those discussions and I think I found that sometimes with patients is that the response sometimes is well why are we talking about that now why is that important mm-hmm. to talk about because I don't feel that unwell or I'm not aware that my disease is you know going to progress to a point that I might need mm-hmm. critical care how do we tackle that situation what's the way we can kind of help patients to mm-hmm. think about it at that stage without unduly worrying them I guess I mean, I would say that we are probably not the experts in having those conversations at that stage. And often that's where the knowledge of the parent teams is really good. So if you imagine some of the community geriatricians or the geriatricians are very good at those kind of conversations around um, palliative care, are very good around treatment decisions and limitations for the future. There are lots of groups of doctors who have done this for a long time and are very good at it. And actually, we should be learning from them and taking some some of their knowledge and and tools on board for us, but actually also supporting them to engage in those kinds of conversations. If you were a hepatologist, for example, you will be very used to having conversations with patients around treatment limitations because there will be some groups of patients who you will say, you don't meet the criteria for transplant, so I can't refer you for transplant. It's actually giving them the support tools they need to be able to have those conversations, not us assuming that we're going to be going and having those conversations all the time and deciding when the right time to have those conversations is. The other thing sometimes is, how do we deal with the situation where a patient wants a treatment, 
or um, you know an escalation plan to intensive mm-hmm. care where where you as clinicians don't think that that's you know the appropriate thing to do I think it's important to separate what is legally the situation from what is clinically the situation on the ground so ever since the Burke case um, I can't even remember when it was probably over well over 10 years ago no patient has a right to demand treatment and you can't demand treatment if the resource isn't there either so can't say I want to have something if it's not felt medically appropriate the issue is often on the ground it can be very difficult particularly as an intensivist to say at that time it's not appropriate And that goes back to that exploration around what is important to the patient, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve, and also bringing in maybe more multidisciplinary involvement if you've got time to have discussions about what you're going to achieve and whether or not you can achieve it. And you might on occasions have to embark on a situation where you say, okay, we will attempt to achieve these goals for you, we will do this but it might be on a time-limited basis and we'll see how things go because acknowledging that we are never 100% right in our decisions. So these are complex, complex discussions, but ultimately we, we shouldn't be treating people we don't believe will benefit, but we should be trying to avoid those kind of awkward standoffs, really, because that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The other thing I've sometimes been involved in is where the family almost appear to coerce the patient into making a decision. Um, And that can be quite tricky and difficult to navigate around as well. And just wondering if you had any advice or tips around that or what we should do in that sort of situation. I would say that's purely from experience. One of the things that I've observed is often the coercion might relate to particular family anxieties and guilt. And they're often not the things you can unpick at the bedside. So that might be a situation of separating the family from the person and exploring with the family what's driving their particular decision or belief, because it it can be very difficult when you've got the whole group around the bedside and they're all focused on one particular outcome, which is admission to critical care. Would you try and talk to the patient on their own or? Yes, I would always try and talk to the patient on their own if I could. And I would also try and talk to the family on their own. I think it's really important to explore what the family understand and what they're trying to achieve. I can give you an example from a few years back, which at the time I found absolutely astonishing. But when I sat with the family, it kind of made some sense. So we had a patient who was dying on the intensive care unit of multi-organ failure, and we were not going to give any more treatment than we were giving at a particular level. And the family were a very, very, very large family. And they could not understand this. They saw this as their relative being denied the chance to survive. And when you actually sat down with them and explored it, their logic came from an interesting place. And their logic was based around the fact that people had heart transplants and lung transplants and kidney transplants and liver transplants. So when they were being told that this individual relative had a number of organ failures, they couldn't understand why transplantation wasn't a suitable treatment. Now that might sound astonishing, but actually until you sat down and explored that with them, we didn't know that's where their anxiety was coming from. And once we went through why those were not options, of course they were very upset, but then they could understand that actually all reasonable clinical options had been exhausted. So it's really 
difficult sometimes, but don't second guess what the family are thinking or where they're coming from. And the same for the patient. I guess it's it's one of those things in our in our jobs that does require a, a good degree of time, doesn't it? Some time dedicated mm. towards it. I think one of the things that I've found as I've progressively do these conversations more and more and more is that coming at it from an aspect that intensive care is actually not a treatment. And actually within it, there are multiple different treatments and different treatment options and going through those and more taking from a perspective that, well, we have to focus on things that might have the best benefit for you if we're weighing up the risks and benefits of those various different treatments. And I don't know if that's something that you do as well. Yeah. And I think some of the changes that are taking place within medical training are going to make a big difference around that because I think you're, you're absolutely right that particularly, again, parent teams, medical teams, they're thinking intensive care is a magic place. They had a respiratory registrar describe that to me. This is a magic building. And then after his three-month attachment, he realised it wasn't a magic Change building. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but, you know, that idea of actually saying it's a concept and there are treatments that are offered, but they are treatments the same as any other. They have a failure rate, and that needs to be explored and discussed. It is not a magic place. The other thing I wanted to touch on is, obviously, people's decisions about things are kind of really informed by their belief structures, aren't they? And, and sort of what they know and their experiences from previous things, or what they might hear from other people. One of the things which, I mean, we live in a very multicultural society and, and how do those sort of different belief structures impact on patients' decisions and how do we manage that in terms of coming to the solution that is useful for both people? Well, I think that's very common and you will see that certain ethnic or religious groupings will have particular views around preservation of life at all costs. Other groupings may have a more pragmatic view. And that has to be understood and their views have to be respected within the context of that belief system. Often it can be very helpful to involve additional people that are able to put that within the context of, of a belief system or a, a way of thinking for a group of people. So in the past, when I've worked in the US, we had a hospital clinical ethics team that came as an acute team to do a consultation and that was a group of professionals that worked with individuals and families to help them come to terms. Within the NHS, very few places have that, but what we all have are actually a hospital chaplaincy system. And certainly my experience of our hospital chaplaincy system is they have been extremely helpful at being a neutral party who can help put into context and into a way that people who are having difficulties because of particular religious beliefs put into contact the information that we're giving in a way that they can understand and come to terms with. So for me, I would say that my first port of call when we've had difficulty has always been the hospital chaplaincy service because they have been very good. There are escalating ways of bringing in additional groups, for example, mediation services when things are getting to be problematic there is going to be a need for more mediation, I think, within the NHS and within critical care services in the future because people do have difficulty sometimes in understanding what critical care can offer. But I think in the first point of all, start with your chaplaincy service because they can be very helpful. That's very useful, Danny, actually. That's something that I've thought about quite a lot, actually, is having that person who's involved who's slightly disconnected from the clinical side of things and I think I always find that sometimes quite difficult because we get sort of emotionally involved in patients as well and that might have some impact on our decision making mm. as well 
And sometimes just having that other person that seems sort of disconnected from that in some ways to be able to sort of mediate between yourselves and the family to kind of give that information is it almost seems like a slightly um, easier way to do it. And I think just your comment you make as well is worth noting and, and acknowledging that fact that there is good research evidence to show that when it comes to patients on critical care, when we have invested time, energy and emotion, we are more likely to keep going with somebody whose overall prognosis is worse than actually make a decision to admit somebody who's got a better prognosis. So when we don't know somebody and haven't invested, we can be far more dispassionate than several days down the line or weeks or whatever. And, and just being aware of that on your behaviour can be really helpful. I mean, how often do you get a second opinion from another colleague who's not directly involved in the care of a patient? I think we would say as a group of clinicians frequently. And that's not around medical legal protection. That's the sense check. That's mm. somebody saying... Am I operating under any kind of bias or prejudice here? Or is this what my colleagues would feel as well? And we would do that frequently. We have a monthly M&M in which we'll screen all patients and say, do any of those patients need to have a formal MDT, bringing in other groups? And I would say probably on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, somebody might just say, can I just run this by the group of you? What do you feel? Can you just sense check this for me? That's not failure, that's good practice.